Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm going to be speaking today with Michelle Wild Anderson, professor at Stanford Law School and Stanford School of Sustainability, about her new book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. And to learn more, go to law.stanford.edu, law.stanford.edu, and search for Michelle Wild Anderson. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the belief that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com. Podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, TerrenceMcNally.net. It's Broke, Let's Fix It is a format that I usually have in mind when I undertake these conversations, and sometimes I state it more explicitly up front, and this is one of those times. Whatever the issue, It's Broke, Let's Fix It involves three primary questions. How is it broken? What's the evidence? How did it get broken? What what are the causes, the history, the culprits? And most importantly, how do we fix it? What are the solutions? In today's conversation with Michelle Wilde Anderson, what's broken is towns and cities all over America. And if you think the term broken is too harsh, Michelle herself talks about taking inspiration from a piece of music. She heard one day on NPR, Symphony for a Broken Orchestra, a score for wounded instruments collected from Philadelphia's public schools. Now, some of these discarded places in her book are rural. Uh, Some of the, I'm going to rephrase that. Some of these discarded places around America are rural. Others are big cities, small cities, historic suburbs. Some vote blue, some red. Some are diverse, while others are nearly all white, all Latino, all black. And in this case, the word broke fits as well, as decades of cuts to local government amidst rising concentrations of poverty have wreaked havoc on communities left behind by the modern economy. They find themselves caught in negative spirals. As local economies shrink, government is underfunded. Underfunded government delivers less to citizens. Citizens lose faith in government and all too often in each other. Coming back from these blows gets harder and harder, but it is not impossible. As Anderson puts it, I decided that I didn't have time, nobody had the time, to write a book about all the problems, and so I chose a smaller subset of cities where I thought they were doing really good work and there's a lot of progress and momentum. And she chooses to focus on four places, Stockton, California, an inland port 60 miles east of Silicon Valley, devastated by foreclosures and municipal mistakes. Lawrence, Massachusetts, an old mill town brought to its knees by crime, drugs, and unemployment. Josephine County in southern Oregon, reeling from the loss of the logging industry. And Detroit, who in 2013 declared the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history, a distinction previously held by Stockton. I believe the most critical loss and the most important resource to cultivate if the negative spirals are to turn to virtuous cycles is trust. And that is happening in these four communities. In Stockton, locals are finding ways beyond the police department to reduce gun violence and treat the trauma it leaves behind. 
In Josephine County, community leaders have enacted new taxes to support basic services in a rural area with fiercely anti-government politics. In Lawrence, leaders are figuring out how to improve job security and wages in an era of backbreaking poverty for the working class. And a social movement in Detroit is pioneering ways to stabilize low-income housing after a wave of foreclosures and housing loss. In her diagnosis, I'm very struck by a synthesis uh, Michelle offers of local governments that are both weak and strong, weak in the ways that could help break intergenerational cycles of poverty, but strong in ways that actually reinforce those cycles. Government systems that haven't disappeared and remain dominant in people's lives, but are not making those lives better. And she populates her narratives throughout the book with a wealth of stories of American heroes. In her words, people who are working their asses off on some of the most important issues in the country, we owe them our respect and our attention, and we owe them our support. Michelle Wilde Anderson is a professor at Stanford Law School and the Stanford School of Sustainability, the chair of the board of directors of the National Housing Law Project, a board member at the East Bay Community Law Center in Oakland. Her work has appeared in, among others, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, Yale Law Journal, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America is her first book. Welcome, Michelle Wilde Anderson, to Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. Oh, Terrence, thank you so much for that generous introduction. I'm really glad to be here. Very good. And let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Thursday, July 13th. I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So can you tell us a bit about how you see your path to the life you lead and the work you do today? And feel free to go way back. You can mention childhood inspirations, mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Thank you. I There are a lot of those, and I could go way back into childhood. But I actually thought this morning um, mostly about this song that we used to play when I was working in Connecticut public housing developments after I graduated from college. And the song was You Gotta Be by Desiree. Maybe your listeners know it. If they don't, they should just go and listen to the song right away. It's a magnificent anthem of um, survival and endurance and sort of hope. Um, and we used to play it at youth events, whether we were recruiting new families, sort of signing them up for summer or after school programs, or we were um, you know, welcoming people to, to a dance performance um, or sharing food, potlucks and so forth. Um, and uh, and the song's lyrics really describe, in her words, challenge what the future holds. She says, you gotta be cool, you gotta be calm, you gotta stay together. Mm. All I know is love will save the day. Listen as your day unfolds, challenge what the future holds. Try and keep your head up to the sky. Lovers, they may cause you tears, Go ahead, release your fears. Stand up and be counted. Don't be shamed to cry. You gotta be, you gotta be bad. You gotta be bold. You gotta be wiser. And we would listen to this song. It's called You Gotta Be. You gotta be cool. You gotta be calm. You gotta stay together. All I know, all I know, love will save the day. You Gotta Be you by gotta Desiree. You Gotta Be by her, Desiree. Her spelling is D-E-S apostrophe R-E-E. Great. 
And it was just, you know, what I was remembering today is just a feeling I got when I listened to that song. So here we are standing in very, very concentrated um, poverty in some of the most hyper segregated public housing developments in America, in New Haven, Bridgeport, Hartford, and so forth. And these neighborhoods were built in the 1940s. The housing is super run down. The racial segregation that populated it was as strict as could be. Deindustrialization is 30 years on at the point that this is happening. So families are starting to run into second generation unemployment the crack epidemic, on and on. And so, so much stigma, so much adversity, really these kids are up against it. And to be in that community of change agents and civil rights leaders and, um, and just youth and social workers and organizers and so forth who are just showing up for the kids in those communities anyway was such a joy. And being part of that mission-driven work um, it was really just an extraordinary way to to live and i've everything i've done since those <laughs> years has has been marked by it and all of my research as an academic has been built on and influenced by those years in connecticut public housing but the book itself really allowed me to go back to that kind of grassroots work and the spirit of that song and just how we felt sort of um doing the right work together with a lot of mission and purpose, even when it was hard and even when there's no promise that it's all gonna get better tomorrow. You do the good work anyway. Right, right, and 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 we depend on the people who do the good work anyway. I, I've heard you say also that, that at this point we're talking about uh, in Connecticut, you are not yet a lawyer. You are community organizer kind of person. And I read, I, I read you said, I saw a law degree, not as a path to being a litigator, but as a toolkit for doing social justice. That's right. Yeah. I mean, back then I was a grant writer. I mean, writing has always been my tool and, you know, there's lots of different ways to use it. And back then I was just using it for not just, but I was using it for fundraising and it allowed me to report on and observe all of the projects that we were doing constantly and to teach some of my own youth classes around photography or poetry or writing or whatever. And um, so, yeah, it, you know, going to law school was an extension of that in part because my several of my mentors and role models in that program had themselves gotten JDs, which made them understand government better. I, I didn't go, like you said, I didn't go to law school to become a litigator to understand litigation better, but I did go and I'm glad I have remained in law as a way of understanding our government systems, our legal structure, the sort of way power is organized in our federal, state, and local hierarchy. Okay, let me let me go back to my introduction just for a second. Thank you for thanking me for its being generous. Was there anything in it that 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 that, that was off, or things in it that you know, particularly you nodded your head and went, "That's it. That's that's what this is about." I mean, I no. It, I mean, nothing was off. It's wonderful to sort of start with the with the symphony of the broken orchestra and the sort of premise of the book that that event the symphony for a broken orchestra took place in philadelphia and was a larger fundraiser for and about music in the philly schools and the book is not about schools and it's not about philly but that spirit is so core to the the 
the project itself. I actually was listening to NPR driving yeah. one day and, and, a, and that as the story of that broken orchestra came on NPR and I practically got in an accident because it just struck me so profoundly that that was the, that was the enterprise. It wasn't about you know, the, the people that I've been interviewing. I did 250 interviews for this book. I've spent a lot of time in these communities and, and somehow that NPR spot on that effort in Philadelphia really captured the, um, the nature of this kind of courageous adaptation to mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. bad circumstances. You know, when they built that orchestra off of all of these busted instruments, it's not because they thought that was avant-garde and would actually <laughs> sound cool or something. They did it because that's the, the instruments that they had and they wanted to show what was possible with kids in music. And so they worked with what they had and they made something that drew attention to their work. And I feel like very big picture, the project of this book or sort of the purpose of this book was to help us believe in poor communities again, because I think that our, our um, eulogies and our kind of voyeuristic empathy for very poor places, which often is coded in a kind of fatalism mm -hmm, that they mm -hmm. cannot recover is an excuse for outsiders to stop caring. And it's an excuse for legislatures to stop appropriating money. It's an excuse for philanthropy and donors to withdraw. And just this story of hopelessness is, you you said it, I mean, it's this vicious cycle of decline. And I think it is its own kind of danger, its own kind of you know, headwind that we start right, just, right. you know, blowing at these communities. That's right. You know, we talk in financial terms of compounded interest. Uh, disinterest compounds as well. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just one thing about that. It's interesting because this word disinvestment is in social science all the time and a lot of urban history. And, you know, disinvestment is in some ways a kind of jargony word from academia. But, you know, this book is really about the compounded consequences mm -hmm. of disinvestment over mm -hmm. time and really the human meaning of that word. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just about kind of, you know, we stop putting money into infrastructure. You know, that's a factual statement. But what happens when you do that and what, you know, who and what and where is at stake in that sort of fact of draining money, you know, toward water systems or sidewalks or whatever it is. Um, anyway, so, you know, it brought it in some ways, the project of researching this book made that that word kind of meaningful and in, in much deeper ways. Well, you, it, it fleshes it out. It, it, right. it, it brings it to life. Um, I, I actually, in addition to this work, have done a lot of work with nonprofits and foundations and governments on telling their stories. Um, after my, you know, uh, career in the entertainment industry, I took that. Uh, it's funny, you know, you did law to help people. I, I, I actually said, went into entertainment thinking, well, that'll give me a platform to help people. <laughs> and I, I've ended up doing that. In, in fact, when you were talking about the Broken Orchestra in Philadelphia, I actually um, worked with a couple of sisters at a Catholic school in Philadelphia um, that dealt with a lot of deep, deep poverty and immigration and whose children excelled. And music was one of the key 
avenues, pathways they used to uh, to translate kids who might not speak very good English into giving them other ways to express themselves as they as they grew. Um, you've mentioned academia a couple of times, and 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 the difference between. Uh, economist word and a graph and the people that 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 economist word is actually talking about how and when did you decide to write this for a popular audience and 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 was there any pushback on that and you you get where i'm going that that's a that's a, a pivot point early in your work on this yeah um first of all just a quick note that i couldn't agree more about music and actually it was that was an incredible discovery of this project just on its own terms that um a lot of these uh, you know very poor places have rich cultural histories in particular in music and just as an as a side note one of the great joys of reporting this book especially in detroit but it was true <laughs> elsewhere was just really allowing uh, I don't know, just allowing the the sort of um, story of the place to uh, come through its its history and music. So I don't know. Anyway, it's just a side note that that was one of the most incredible things. And especially in the Detroit chapter, I wrote a lot about the city's music history mm -hmm. and some of its musicians who um, were sort of there across the the good times and the bad. Sure. But, the blues, yeah. right? The blues. Right. I mean, not that Detroit is mainly famous for the blues, but the blues is a form of music that, has, you know, is, is about triumph and about pain. Yeah, no, exactly. And actually, Sunhouse and some of these incredible musicians that came up from the Deep South in the Mississippi blues tradition, you know, really were sort of origin stories for modern American music. So sort of seeing their lives and their neighborhoods and so forth was over time, you know, just so magnificent. Um, but I don't want to dodge your big question about <laughs> academia. So, so true. And so, you know, I believe in large scale social science. I think it's critical to understanding larger patterns, macroeconomic trends, you know, this, um, you know, I, I, I believe in large scale empirical work, whether it's coming from economics or sociology or, you know, political science or whatnot. Um, you know, we all have our different tools and I, and I think um, at some points in my own career as a writer, I've really tried to work at national scale, really looking at problems from a kind of national aerial point of view. I did that a lot in the Great Recession as I sort of watched all of these municipalities around the country go through bankruptcy and just go broke. Um, so I believe in that work and it is not sufficient on its own. And I think, you know, you know so well, and this podcast keeps true to that spirit, that um, we also have to remember what's at stake in these larger patterns. And just as federal policy, in my view, cannot be effective without effective um, advocates on the ground, so to national level academia cannot be accurate or effective without really um, sort of uh, hooking back into what's actually taking place and sort of correcting national um, tools with some what is often called ground truthing um, mm -hmm. of stories at the at the place level. Um, so in some ways, it's just a, a craft choice that I was dying to write <laughs> narrative, you know, write in a narrative style, really try to learn how to do that and stay close to these amazing people that I was interviewing. Um, but then it was also just 
I actually think one of the problems for very concentrated poverty in America is that um, sometimes we, we tell some incredible stories by journalists at the individual or mm -hmm. family level, and we have done some great sociology at the neighborhood level. And then we've thought, you know, so we think about inequality among individuals and neighborhoods um, and national inequality at such depth. And I think sometimes we forget that at the city level or at the county level, we also have a widening inequality problem in the country where we have local government haves and have nots. And that problem is getting worse over time. Um, and so I'm doing some national work to sort of document the scale of that nationwide. But for this project, I wanted to really understand what was at stake in the poorest places, um, you know, right now at the ground level. Very good. You chose the four locations uh, from, from, as I'm looking at it, the way a writer or a filmmaker has to choose characters, especially a documentary, right? A documentary filmmaker shoots, you know, may shoot how a dozen people in a particular documentary uh, go through everything. And then in the editing process, they decide these are the four we're going to focus on and so on. And you did something similar. How many cities did you research or consider and how and why did you choose the ones you did? Yeah, that's such an interesting observation. I think it's really true. Um, I, uh, I, did, I, I did a big project related to 26 communities around the country, and then I dropped down into seven to look at mm. those more closely. Um, and, uh, and you're right, the, the book sort of dis, you know, pulled even further back for this tighter group of four. And they, just as you described, at some level, they were chosen based on a series of um, intuitions, really, if I'm fully <laughs> honest, about, about the sort of access that I had, the sort of openness that people had, and really the the strength of the the story that I felt I could tell. So, you know, there's good work. I, I believe you could write a fight to save the town story in dozens of American mm -hmm. communities. I am not trying to say that these four places are doing it better or have figured it out in ways that others haven't. But for various idiosyncratic reasons related to, you know, the people I met, these four communities opened to me in ways that I felt like I could be a curator or a storyteller for that work. And I wanted them, just as you captured in your introduction, to be different from each other, mm -hmm. because I think a part of what we do is we, we have these latent and sometimes explicit stories that you know, some kinds of poverty are rural and white and other kinds of poverty are black and urban and other kinds of poverty are in, you know, Latino or diverse cities. And these stories actually let us off the hook for the larger patterns that are actually linking all of those contexts together. And they let us off the hook for the politics too, because if we think, you know, X, Y, and Z problems are only associated with, you know, deeply conservative anti-government places. We're really not seeing the sort of linked fate between those places and ones that are incredibly progressive. So it's actually amazing as, as a learner, you know, a book like this turns you into a student and as That's a right. student of these places, one of the things that struck me just over and over again was how much they had in common. Yeah. And like you said, trust is one of those big things. I mean, you know, I in all of these interviews, that theme just came up over and over, that long-term chronic poverty, 
breaks down systems of trust at the block level, at the city level, you know, institutions working with each other, um, trust with the police department, trust with the, with the state government and so forth. And so a big part of what the advocates I, were writing, I was writing about were trying to do in all of these places was, was go to the, the heart of that problem and try to get people to believe again, try to get people to work together, to cooperate, to set joint goals, to pool resources, to yield to each other. And I think you can't fix the worst problems. You can't really show up for a place with that much poverty unless people are working together. Right. And there's research that shows, again, we're talking about some of that you know, social science research, it shows that scarcity and fear um, actually, of course, reduce trust. They, they actually even reduced intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so that's another way on the individual level where uh, the, the vicious cycle needs to be turned around. That's right. And actually, it's a public health problem, too. Yes. I think COVID has improved our understanding of this. And you've covered pieces of this on this very podcast. But, you know, when when people, um, you know, carry around a kind of load of toxic stress in their daily environments because they're surrounded by strangers in high violence environments where they don't trust each other, the wear of and tear of that that those hormones that toxic stress on children and on adults over time it interferes with child development with youth development it's you know it's central to the perpetuation of crime and violence in families and in public and and so you know it, it's actually a, a profound problem on its own terms it's not simply a consequence of concentrated poverty it's a driver oh yes i mean this yeah. is it, I mean, one thing i love about your work and your book is is the the layers sort of the you know and, and the intersection both of those things let me say so we're going to jump into actually the three questions but let me just see if, if i'm right about this as i was looking at these four I said to myself, these are not just examples. They are specific real life examples. But on the problem side, it seems to me that some form of this, this poverty of industry, uh, poverty of economy, leading poverty of government, leading to more, you know, all that stuff we're talking about, is so rampant that it has to be recognized and repaired as a trend, as a phenomenon, a crisis. Um, and my thought was that tools and resources and funds from every level of government need to recognize this, this, this phenomenon. And even if the solutions ultimately have to be local, the support from state and federal levels, it seems to me, has to recognize this recurring, repetitive, consistent problem across the board. I totally agree. I think that's very well said. And this is where, you know, the for our most complex problems, you know, let me back up and just say a moment ago, we we're just talking about cooperation, right? If you've got a town with all of these dynamics of scarcity and people sort of competing for scraps, mm -hmm. you know, you will have um, different nonprofits fighting against yes. each other, you know, sort of competing in negative ways. I think that dynamic happens, you know, at at government levels too, both departments scrapping against oh, each other or cities competing with their own counties or their own neighbors, but also, 
you know, that kind of cooperation, that the necessity of cooperation in times of scarcity really applies to federal, state, and local politics too. You know, I do not believe that the best federal policy can do its job if it doesn't have places to land on the ground, like partners that are functional and working together. And same on the reverse. I don't believe you can write the best federal policy just sitting in an office somewhere daydreaming about right and wrong. You learn that from the grassroots. So I think those vertical partnerships of you know, federal agencies working with state officials, working with local governments, like working with nonprofits on the ground are critical to accountability and accuracy and so forth. So that's one thing. Secondly, just as you put it beautifully, we have to understand the, the unique problem of citywide poverty at the federal and state level if we're going to address it. So that problem, just to be super specific about it, is that in this new world where we have all of these local government haves and have nots, we have a lot of municipalities in the country or counties that enclose these really weak tax bases because not only do they have lots of pockets of very intensive concentrated poverty, but they've got giant areas of mostly working class. So they they don't have, you know, so this is not San Francisco. This is not New York. They have intense concentrated pockets of poverty, but they also have intense concentrated pockets of wealth. So their tax base overall is, you know, quite strong. The places that I write about, whether they're giant rural counties or small deindustrialized towns or big cities that have, you know, declining wages, they have you know really weak tax base all over um, their territory and that is a self-fulfilling prophecy right. of decline if they have to fund their basic services including schools of course from that weak tax base and that leaving them to fund their services from within their borders is a political choice you know, we did a lot less of that before the 1980s. So in other words, before the 1980s, we were evening out the expenditures per capita, whether you lived in Newton, Massachusetts, a very wealthy you right. know, suburb with a terrific school system, or you lived in, you know, in Lawrence. Um, and so we were, we were evening out those differences. And um, starting in the 80s, I think in part because of these very toxic stories we started to tell about you know, quote unquote, inner cities like failing and, you know, mm -hmm. being mismanaged and hopeless and so forth. We, you know, really um, slowed and withdrew a lot of that redistribution. We disinvested in physical infrastructure. We disinvested in community colleges and people, human capital training. And, um, you know, I think we really started to stack up more and more years, more and more people. Um, who are who are trapped in these environments of concentrated poverty. So yeah, we have to get a hold of the problem itself um, and we have to answer it at all of those levels. And, and one thing I would think is uh, almost a good, uh, 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 you know, a positive spin on this is that if the problems are very similar in these uh, places all across the country, then even though the local solutions will depend on local circumstances and local leaders and local citizens, there might be some principles, some, you know, some pathways that might work to support them across the board. You know, the, the more the problem is everywhere, the more the solution can be everywhere. 
Right. And that's something that has been so incredible in, in sharing this book since its release is really seeing community members in other cities I didn't write about. Right engaging with these other places and really learning from them. I mean, really watching, this is, you know, an ongoing project to sort of operationalize these four places and the stories in the book to support advocates in other cities. And, and I think it's been very rewarding to see the way people resonate and, and learn from each other. There are, there are stories to be learned. And I think, so that's true, full stop, no buts. And it's also true, just as you said, that, you know, we can't sort of bundle up some perfect homogenous playbook. And I learned this so most vividly in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is just 15 minutes away from a different deindustrialized textile town in Lowell, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. that many listeners may have heard of. And it was so amazing. And Lawrence, one of the community leaders there, Jessica Andors, who I wrote about, taught me that the the national origin of the immigrants to Lawrence was quite different than the national origin of those to Lowell. And hmm. that actually really affected the way you organize because whether if people are refugees from autocratic states with where they were victimized by state violence and mm. are incredibly afraid of government, mm. they are, they have a different, they have a different set of, of, needs to address as you organize them than people who are pure economic migrants who don't mistrust the state, but are, you know, fleeing poverty, you know, mm -hmm. um, directly. And, and that, so anyway, it was just that she said, she said this in the context of cautioning me, mm -hmm. she said, you can't take what we do in Lawrence and just, you know, bundle it up and apply it to, you know, the Bronx, like we have a, you know, different set of, of issues. We have different kinds of trust and, and methods that are possible here. But she said the core underlying commitment of the work is to work alongside neighborhoods to really listen to their needs and to involve community members as leaders in their own solutions, that it, it couldn't be a kind of, um, you know, that community development organizations and local governments can't just you know, rush in and boss around, um, you know, very low income areas, both because they don't have the money to actually deliver on large scale <laughs> solutions alone, but also because people are, um, you know, you have to rebuild that trust. And that means, you know, government has to prove itself to be trustworthy. It has to prove itself to be listening. Yeah. Yep. Let me tell people, this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking today with Michelle Wild Anderson. She's a professor at Stanford Law School and Stanford School of Sustainability. And we're talking about her new book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. And to learn more, you can go to law.stanford.edu, law.stanford.edu, and then search for Michelle Wild Anderson. And, and I will say that I have watched her sign books and when she does, at least maybe not every time, but I saw her cross out the word the um, so that what it said was fight to save the town. Let's uh, go to the three big questions. The first one is, how do we know that these places are broken? I think we can actually deal with this one the most quickly because this is the one people have heard the most about. The evidence that they're broken. Uh, I'll just let you do a brief response to that and then we'll move to how it happened and then how we fix it. 
Yeah, sure. Um, and I, just quickly, that that um, I do sign books that way. I sign them so that it all, the title is altered to say "Fight to Save Your Town," ah. because I really believe in this kind of participatory work. And again, in conditions of scarcity, um, you know, this this can't be left to people in positions of power, people who make it their full time job. It you know, it really yep. has to be work that's committed to across communities. Um, but uh, but yes, so. Um, Evidence of, uh, of the brokenness. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I used a very specific um, definition in, in the book, which is places that have um, high rates of concentrated poverty, but also a low median income to really capture this dual problem that they have pockets of incredibly poor families. So high rates of people living under the federal poverty line, which is something like $26,000 a year for a family of four. Right. So just want like your listeners to yeah. fully like yeah. do some little pencil sketch budgets on living for a family of four. Well, well, just the quickest, the quickest one is 26,000 is a little more than 2000 a month. And if you yeah. know what rents are, wherever you are, you know how little is left over once you've paid that. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even in places with a cheaper cost of living, that is a very tight budget. But, you know, the fact that we have, um, you know, 15% or so, I haven't checked the most recent numbers, but, you know, I live in San Francisco in California and, you know, 15% of California is living under that line on our cost of living. So anyway, so this is a very high, you know, these are communities, cities or counties that have a very high rate of that kind of intensive of concentrated poverty, but they also just in general have low median income, which means that county or citywide, um, their incomes are are significant are significantly below those um, in their state, and so that's the that's the definition I used. And once you use that definition, you start. I'm doing a large national empirical project related to this, but once you use that definition, you start to realize that just immediately what one of the consequences of that kind of combined problem is that you get very high rates of broke governments and broke for governments is kind of a, a similar thing to what it is for individuals that they can no longer pay their bills so they sell as much as they can they cut back programs till they're kind of unrecognizable um, minimal levels of services, and uh, and they you know go into dangerous and sometimes very high risk forms of debt, um, and you know government becomes unrecognizable, and that was where a lot of this work started was just seeing what it looked like to have no local government. Just you know the I wrote about as you said Josephine County, Oregon, and it was you know the the most rural place that i wrote about in the book but there's a lot of rural areas like it around the country where 911 dispatch in the context of an emergency whether it's a heart attack or a violent crime in progress is uh, is almost unavailable or incredibly slow um, and uh, it's it's truly unrecognizable as compared to what's available in more prosperous areas and and just so and people I, know yeah. Josephine County we're calling it rural Oregon, does have 80,000 residents. It may be large, but that's 80,000 human beings that have no 911. I'm so glad you said that because we would love to fantasize that these places are just empty. Yeah. You know, that's part of the the daydream that, you know, this is just a natural process. One of my students. That's right. That, that people said have this, left. 
Yeah, that it's just like, you know, there's this natural sorting that happens and these places are emptying out over time. But that's not true. Josephine's overall population has been relatively stable. It's grown. Its biggest towns have grown a lot. And so it's not that it's, you know, it's just evaporating. We're not on our way to a ghost town. We are dealing with, you know, with 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 people who are who are there. And so whatever the long term prospects are for a community, there are people that are there right now. Um, and I was really profoundly um, taught this lesson by a woman actually in Flint, who I, I was reporting on Flint for a while, but in the context of the water crisis, mm -hmm, sure. um, uh, there were a lot of people for whom it anyway, it was it was very um, I decided not to write directly about Flint to protect a lot of the people that I was mm. um, interviewing as they, you know, went through these elaborate lawsuits over the water crisis itself. But in any event, I was in Flint doing a lot of initial interviews. And I will never forget this woman that I interviewed, just a resident of the city who um, had uh, really given up on Flint. And she was part of the long-term population loss, because certainly Flint has a shadow of its total population at its peak today. So she was part of that diaspora. She had moved her family to Houston. She had two sons. She was African-American. She really believed that for Black sons, they were better off in Houston. She thought Flint was dangerous for them and not um, sustainable. And, um, and she actually felt better about Houston. Um, she got them through three years of school in Houston until they were in high school. And then her mom needed uh. her care. She had an elderly mom back in Flint. She could not afford to sustain, you know, her mom moving in and carry her sons in Houston on her meager service mm. income in the city. And so she moved back to a place where she could have housing for her three dependents, essentially. And it was a very natural and just such a, it was such a recognizable choice. It's really quite similar choices that I made about my own mom. It's, you know, we have these duties to our family members. And so we can sort of daydream that Flint is draining population um, and that everybody there would be better off if they moved to the Gulf or some other growing <laughs> place. Um, in Before terms of climate flooded, change, yes. that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, in terms of climate, climate change, that's ludicrous. But even, even, without that element there are realities to people's families yes. and um and so you know these flint is her home and for as long as it's her home and the home of her sons and her mom it should be a place where they where she's safe and her boys have a chance just because i thought it was uh one of the real aha moments for me in, in your work is what I described in, in the introduction as this, this synthesis of local governments that are both weak and strong. Before we move on, just describe that phenomenon. Because I think when people see it, they, they, they don't realize that that's going on, but when they see it, where the government actually begins to prey on its citizens rather than deliver for them, because it needs, it needs their transgressions to fund its existence. Yeah, I, I think that framing is very powerful. So I've thought about myself for over 10 years as 
a as a scholar of weak governments that's you know i've done tons of work in rural areas that have you know desperate needs for infrastructure water sanitation flood control and so forth i think of myself as a scholar of places that just really need more basic investment for their people to be safe and they're broke and they're very thin um but you know, then you start actually spending a lot of time interviewing people and you realize that's not how they understand government. They understand government is actually quite strong, mm. but they're in ways that are a risk to their family members. In very poor areas, government is incredibly present through policing, you know, in, in urban areas that have, where the um, arrest rates remain high. You can have, and, and local governments can offload the cost of arrest to state systems that actually pay for incarceration. Mm -hmm. So you can get the, the power of policing as a very strong arm of the state. The eviction courts and the presence mm. and availability of eviction courts means that even in places where government is almost completely absentee for people's basic well-being, it'll be sure and process your eviction. So the courts are running, and those two are also funded by state, you know, mm -hmm. processes. Mm -hmm. Or immigration law, mm. where you know it's funded by the federal government, but you know one day I was on an airplane leaving a reporting trip to Lawrence, and one of the organizers I was working with texted me. I got this as soon as I landed that there had just been an ICE raid on the line, waiting for appointments to regularize immigration status in Lawrence. So when ICE comes in, you know this is federal power. But, you know, it's people are waiting in line to, you know, regularize their status at the at the federal mm. building and they're being, you know, arrested. So this is, you know, that's another example in Josephine County, the sense of government of D.C. sort of locking up the federal forest through environmental law is an you know a sense that the the state is way too strong, that regulation is way too strong, that um, federal agencies are are too big and making the wrong choices. So these are all examples where you know they didn't they're they're low the normal people you know don't differentiate like oh what you know how do I think of my local government versus state and federal tiers of government. So if if the if government is in their lives and creating risks to their families, um, they'll feel the presence of that strong state. And I think at a bottom line, you know, the bottom line work that I was trying to report on in this book was what it looks like when government is a partner and a provider for lifting people up, you know, sort of into yeah. housing, into better wages, into youth programs, not a, you know, a, a, a penal colony, <laughs> right? sort of run, you know, run around the kind of discipline project. Right. Of, right. Um, that that, that, that everything people. else, everything else has gone. So in a deteriorating environment, uh, crime emerges and so on. And that's the one thing that sticks around is, is, is the, the government as punisher, the government as exactly. enforcer, the government, the government's aim to provide safety is the only thing 
left. Um, what we did there was we shifted right into the second question, which is how did this happen? And, and I think we've, we've kind of covered a lot of that. Let me just read one paragraph of yours, which is that decades into a process of fiscal decline, a local government will have no more loans to take, taxes to raise, services to privatize, or assets worth selling. As the city reduces or eliminates staff, local government seems less competent, more irritating, infrastructure and public space decays. That's that's a, a process that we've seen in most of these places. Yeah, and you know, it just it it really explains that vicious cycle and sort of how you turn that around is the heart of this book. Um, you know, people who are really trying to refocus the government project on on investing in in the and let, and let me itself. let me just jump in and lay one other piece that that we haven't mentioned but i think people go oh yeah which is that when this process is going on when this dynamic is taking place very often the city leaders the county leaders the the, the local leaders begin to compete for a corporation to come in and and they put all their energy in appealing to people outside their locale rather than serving people inside. And as you point out, it robs the local uh, people. It seldom wins anyway. And even when it wins, it doesn't usually pencil out. Exactly. And, you know, your listeners will, you know, many of them will immediately associate this with Amazon's HQ2 sure. in which local and state governments are climbing all over each other, poking each other's eyes out, trying to recruit HQ2. And then, you know, only to have all of those, um, you know, resources that they put into consulting and so forth um, uh, wasted as HQ2 sort of settles on two very predictable locations. And, you know, Foxconn, I mean, these deals have been around forever. It's and, and I mean, so there's also in academia, like writing about these big deals that have just couldn't survive a cost benefit analysis under any calculus. That is not, you know, they, they, if, if we're going to talk about kind of economic rationality right. and public policy, they are doomed. And yet we keep doing it. And I think there's very understandable incentives that mm -hmm. politicians mm -hmm. have. You yep. know, they want to cut the ribbon on those hundred jobs and a hundred jobs is better than no jobs. And it's, you'd rather cut the ribbon on that success than really admit how much those hundred jobs are going to cost the larger tax base over the next 20 years. Right. And as you and we point do out this with big box, we do this with, you know, Walmart's all the time. I mean, it's a big part of our, our problem. Yeah. It's what municipal leaders seem to focus on. And as you point out, what, works or what will work is investing in your young people, investing in your locals, invest in, and, and that is a much shorter term, less flashy, uh, you know, uh, photo op. Less flashy is so right. And it, you know, one organizer, um, a woman um, named Jasmine Delafosse in, in Stockton, who's a hero of mine, um, you know, said this so beautifully. She just said, you know, we are planting seeds that may not take full 
growth, even in our lifetime or the lifetimes of our careers. You know, when you invest in kids or youth or you invest in skills of adults, you know, it's slow work. It's not going to deliver in one politician's term of office. And so, but that's the work. And in Lawrence, I described this incredible effort to really build this pipeline training program in the schools and the hospitals, you know, K to 12 schools have to be there. They're the one local government service we're actually legally entitled to. <laughs> and then we've got these, you know, Lawrence, like many older cities, has a big hospital with clinics, you know, adjacent to it. It's got a base of entry level jobs in the public schools and in healthcare. And so getting local residents into those jobs training them for them, setting up um, programs that allow them to work by day and make rent while they're developing entry-level skill jobs so that they can get out of driving for Uber, you know, Uber Eats or whatever during the pandemic and get into a stable job with a predictable schedule. That invests in those people and they may not stay in Lawrence forever. Mm. In fact, some of the amazing people that I wrote about um, and the woman, a woman named Joanne Pena, who's the heart of the epilogue, you know, she chooses to leave Lawrence as soon as she can because she does the natural thing that, you know, so many parents do. She wants to get her kid into a better school district. And so it's not to trap them in these cities. It's to actually give them choices. And I think we have to do more to celebrate local governments that invest in their residents, not in Amazon not in, you know, Foxconn, a multinational. Right, right. I mean, that's and once you invest in people, they may leave, they may stay, but you're actually doing your job as a local government. Right. And for that for those programs that I described, it took, you know, cooperation, the vocational school, the the school, the public schools and hospitals, you know, community organizers, there's all kinds of partners that have to be around the same table, trusting each other, investing in grants together and, you know, delivering on programs and they, and they did it and it's not fast. You know, you don't right. like, train thousands of people overnight. You know, you, you have to build human infrastructure and, um, and really, uh, you know, keep it funded and durable over time, the kind of steady and slow, true work of anti-poverty. Let me let me say a line that I uh, wrote when I was talking about generations working together versus opposing each other uh, to fight climate, but I think it applies very much to what we're talking about here. If the challenges we face are big enough to divide us, then they must be big enough to bring us together. And it seems to me that runs through all of what all of what we're talking about here, especially in a place uh, that distrusts government and distrusts others and so on. If you've got about three minutes left, what are, what's the final sort of marching orders to listeners? What's what what have you learned that works and, and that these individual hero stories will will demonstrate and so on? What's the what's the big takeaway that you want people to get? so that we can turn this stuff around? Um, so let me let me give two answers to that. One is that I think we need to check ourselves and really um, uh, resist these sort of fatalistic, highly stigmatized stories of American poverty and really, um, you know, apply our kind of critical 
thinking skills as we hear these kind of fatalistic portrayals. Um, because as voters, as just regular citizens, if we believe that low-income America is completely hopeless, full of lost people and terrible politicians, um, you know, we let ourselves off the hook as voters um, and we, you know, really fail to hold our legislatures to account for the kind of reinvestment that's needed. But as line citizens, you know, for the average person who's not involved in government themselves or not a, you know, a sort of advocate directly, um, there are places and, and subjects or, you know, things that they're just naturally connected to. And that's why I love um, correcting the title to save fight to save your town, yes. because I actually it to me, it doesn't really matter where you live. You know, if you live in Menlo Park, California, one of the wealthiest towns in Silicon Valley, you're actually close to some of the most concentrated poverty in the United States. And I mean, literally, it's in your backyard. So there's two things that you have a responsibility to do, I think, as a resident of Menlo Park. One is to permit the affordable housing that yes. allows your workforce to live closer to their job so that people in cities like Stockton don't have to spend three hours a day away from their children in order to re reach your underpaid jobs. And second, so I think that's a land use fight and we have a personal responsibility to reduce the economic segregation of wealth and poverty in America. But secondly, you know, that voter in Menlo Park, you know, has, if they want to be at potlucks and dance performances and so forth, like I was describing at the outset where incredible civil rights leaders of color are, you know, breaking bread together and really showing up for vulnerable people, that is right in your backyard too. And you can do it by getting involved in youth programs and arts programs and, and seniors social programs. change work. Seniors programs, for sure. And and so there's there's so much work in that way. And then I think in, you know, many of the cities that I wrote about, you know, broadly kind of discarded America, they have experienced such profound diasporas of their college graduates. This mm. is often called the brain drain, but I hate that expression because believe me, there's lots of brains left behind and college degrees don't always That's <laughs> right. capture That's the brains right. that are out there. So right. it's so, but you know, the this diaspora from these cities means that there are quote unquote expats of discarded America all over the place. Mm. And they can, you know, reconnect with their hometowns. And some of the most amazing work that I got to see in this book is done not just by um, by people who still live in the city, but people who live in its suburbs and used to live there or had, you know, family that mm. lived there or people that live, you know, in some bigger city farther away and are still connected to work and programs back home. And last, I'll just, you know, end with Danny Rivera, who was just such a spectacular mayor of Lawrence. Um, he, I will never forget being in his um, mayoral conference room, his office, and he had this whiteboard. And on the whiteboard, he'd written a message. Um, and it, it said, 
do something. Can we do it today? It said that was in blue. <laughs> and then right below it in red, it said, stop explaining the problem, start explaining the solution. And right below that, his wife, who knew how hard their jobs were and how kind of thankless this kind of work is, she had written, keep your head up. Um, and I just feel like that, do something, can we do it today, is really the the heart of the call for anybody, you know, people are going to choose different things. Some people are drawn to youth. Some people are drawn to housing. Some people are drawn to religious um, congregations that do service work. There's a lot of different ways to be involved. And, um, but, you know, it says do something, not do nothing or, you know, hide under your desk until somebody else makes it better. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> And that's the spirit of your podcast. Terry. It, it so, is. It is. You know, that's a, a world that just might work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, the book is The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. And to learn more, you can go to law.stanford.edu, law.stanford.edu, and search for Michelle Wilde Anderson. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net. T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, TerrenceMcNally.net, or a world that just might work.com to the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and links to probably 10 or 15 articles to flesh out the conversation, um, you can email me at T-E-McNally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at Mac.com. Or you can sign up at my website. You can also subscribe and listen to the podcast at most of those podcast sites. And you'll find years of podcasts at those sites or at my site. Uh, Bill McKibben, Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Kiana Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. And most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, Thank you, Michelle Wilde. Anderson, keep up your good work. Oh, thank you so much. This was a joy.